Well, today, since we are having several people getting baptized uh, after this service, we're going to be going down to the, the lake, if, and you're all uh, invited to come, welcome to come. We'd love for you to come and to uh, witness this uh, step of our brothers and sisters in their faith. But I thought we'd take a little break from First John and talk about baptism a little bit, because uh, it's one of those steps that I think is very important in your faith. Uh, the reason we're called a Baptist church, for those of you who don't come from a Baptist background, is that during the Reformation, Baptists started around 1680 or so, uh, so it was after the big first wave of the Reformation, they had this idea of, of a believer's church theology. They believed that the members of the church should actually be believers in Christ. And that might sound kind of like a no-brainer to us today, but back in the day, uh, you had things they called you know, the... the uh, territorial church. If you were born in a particular territory, you were made a part of that church, whether or not you ever made a confession of faith or not. That was, that was the way it was through most of Europe. If you were born in a certain territory, you were part of that church. You were part of the whatever the territorial church was, the Catholic church, or at that time, the Lutheran church, maybe in Germany. But the Baptist said that you should be believers. It shouldn't just be made up of people who are born in a particular place. And so they, uh, they said that a person that was going to join the church or be part of the church was to be a confessed believer in Christ and that this was expressed through a believer's baptism, which they believed was the biblical uh, expression we see in the scriptures and also is just one of the very few ways that you can kind of see an outward step of faith of what someone believed. And so this is why we're called a Baptist church because uh, our church is made up uh, in theory uh, we actually have a bit of a, a, a caveat in there for us associate membership because we understand that people don't necessarily come to IVCD because we're Baptists, but mostly because we're English speaking and Bible teaching. But uh, historically, that's why it's called a Baptist church. The, believe, the members of the church have been baptized. And so we're going to look at a passage. Uh, there's lots of passages that talk about baptism. And a lot of them, baptism is one of these things, and if you were in the baptism class, you heard me tell you this a couple weeks ago, that there's many different things going on all at the same time. There's the idea of death to self and life in Christ being expressed. There's the idea of unity being expressed. There's the idea of being cleansed of your sin being expressed. Now, we don't believe the waters are magic and they cleanse you of your sin, but it's a symbol of all these things. And there's a passage which I've always found very interesting. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I've spoken on this before. But I find this particular passage uh, intriguing because of the, the way the Apostle Paul uses uh, Old Testament imagery and then he kind of fuses it with a New Testament idea, theology of baptism, to give this idea to the Corinthians of what it means to follow Christ. And if you know anything about the, the church of Corinth, if you've, if you've read the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, the church in Corinth was kind of Paul's problem child. You know, he, he had established a bunch of churches. He was kind of their spiritual father of several churches. But the Corinthian church was kind of a mess. And they stayed kind of a mess pretty much most of their history. Even after the Apostle Paul, we have other letters that were written to the church in Corinth from a guy named Clement of Alexandria. And they never really got their act together. And their big issue was they had a huge problem with spiritual pride. They really believed that they were the most spiritual out there. They wanted to show it in every way possible. And this is why there's more talk in the letters of Corinth to the Corinthians about spiritual giftedness, like speaking in tongues and all that, because they, they had taken basically a pagan view 
of these expressions of, of spirituality, and the Apostle Paul was trying to bring them into a place of a, a Christ-centered view. But they didn't want to listen to Paul because they pretty much thought they were more spiritual even than the Apostle Paul. That, and he even says so in the letters, especially if you read 2 Corinthians, that they, that they really didn't want to listen to him. They thought he was unimpressive uh, in, his, uh, in the way that he preached. And they just, even though he was their planting father, in a sense, a spiritual father of the church, they didn't want to listen to him. And so after the Apostle Paul in the letter of 1 Corinthians goes through this long section of justifying his rights as a minister of the gospel, rights which he, he told them, I've set aside so that I'm not a burden to you. He comes to this part in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he says this. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul says something which is an interesting little phrase. He says in verse 2, when he's talking about the people of Israel, as they're coming out of the, the Egyptian slavery, when they're enslaved into Egypt, as they're coming out, that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's kind of an unusual way of, of phrasing this, because if you look in the Old Testament, there is no phrase like this. There's no phrase when you read the story in Exodus that the people of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the Apostle Paul, what he's doing is he's taking a, a very well-known, especially to the Jewish people, which the early church was mostly Jews, He's taken a very well-known Old Testament story, which really was the, the, the story of the Exodus is really the center of Judaism. What the, what the cross is to Christianity, the story of the Exodus is to Judaism. It is really the defining story, the defining event within that faith. And he is bringing into it some New Testament imagery and phraseology when he talks about being baptized into Moses. So what is he trying to say here? And what is it that he's trying to teach the Corinthians about baptism? Well, as you know, most of you know, probably, the story of Moses. You know, Moses was a, uh, a Hebrew. He was born uh, in Egypt while the, Egypt, while the Israelites had been taken from a place of being uh, in a place of favor in Egypt to a place of slavery. And by the way, there's a lot of archaeological finds that have been coming up in the last 20 years or so that show that there, there was a Semitic people in Egypt and they went from a place of being rich to poor. This has been found in archaeology uh, today. So this isn't just some fairy tale. Some people like to think the Bible is just a bunch of myths and fairy tales. There's an archaeological, there's a lot of archaeological proof in the finding to this. And maybe your type of person says, I don't need archaeological proof. I'm just going to go by faith. I am too, but I like archaeological proof. And so, they, uh, so they're in this place of slavery. Moses uh, goes into his own kind of his story. He's raised by an Egyptian princess, 
because his mom puts him in a river when all the babies are going to be killed and uh, the boys. And he kind of goes through his own desert experience through a lot of uh, things that happen in his life. He ends up going into the desert. He ends up fleeing from Egypt. He becomes a, uh, herd, a sheep herder or goat herder in the, in the desert, has this experience with God. God tells him to go back and to convince the Pharaoh to let the people go. And this is no small task. But he does it. And the story, that's where the whole, uh, the plagues come into, into uh, the story. And there's lots of plagues that end up uh, convincing the Pharaoh to let the people go. But finally, the people are allowed to leave Israel, uh, Egypt, and they're on their way out. And the Pharaoh changes his, his mind. Actually, the scripture tells us his heart was hardened. And so he sends the army after the people. And the people end up, they get led by Moses to the shore of the Red Sea. And, and while, as they're going out into the desert, they're following the Lord. The Lord goes ahead of them. He manifests himself as a pillar like of cloud in the daytime, a pillar of fire by night. So they, they can see the, the way they're supposed to go. And they end up at the, at the sea. And the people aren't very happy with this situation because they know that the Egyptian army is coming up behind them. And they actually tell Moses, they go, well, there you go, Moses. That was great. It wasn't good enough for just to die in Egypt. You had to bring us out so we could die in the desert. Thanks a lot, Moses. And Moses is also concerned. And he begins to pray, and the Lord tells him, don't worry about it. I've got this worked out. And, of course, you know the story. He raises his hands. And from the cloud, the scripture is very clear, from the cloud comes a wind that blows the whole night. It's not, the, it's not this dramatic, immediate separating of the waters in the scripture. A cloud and this wind blows all night. And when the morning comes, the waters have been parted. Still pretty spectacular. And then the people find themselves in this very strange situation. And imagine it. Kind of put yourself there. Kind of imagine what it would be like. You're standing on the shore. And behind you is coming an army that wants to take you back to your old way of life. It wants to take you back into the way of slavery. It wants to take you back into the way of death. And they are coming up behind you, and they are merciless. But the way out, the escape route that's in front of you seems insane. It's this pathway through the ocean and that's how you'd respond to it you'd be like what this is crazy lord there's got to be a way that's a little more sane than walking through these waters which have been parted and they're being held up by i don't know towering above swirling dark What would you choose to do? What would be going through your head? I can go back to the way of life that I knew. And yeah, it was slavery, but at least I was alive. Or I can walk into this terrifying and seemingly impossible situation. And so what did the people do? Well, they looked to Moses and they said, well, we'll see what Moses is going to do. And Moses... Like a good leader, 
sent all the people in front of him and said, see how this works out. I'll come up behind you. <laughs> no, he went first. He walks into that place, into those dark waters, into this impossible canyon of water, into the valley of death. And the people watch him, and then they follow into that too. And Paul says that it is in this act the people were baptized into Moses and into the cloud and into the sea. What does he mean by that? Well, it means that in this act, following the lead of Moses, the people and Moses all shared a common experience of life, of by faith walking into a place that seems like certain death, only to come out on the other side alive again, but different. At this time, when they come out on the other side, they're no longer slaves. They're free. And if you know the story, even though Pharaoh's army comes after them, the waters close up on them. And the threat of going back to their old way of life is diminished, removed. The only thing that could ever make them go back to their own way of life now, old way, is by their own choice. They're free. And in this act, the people share this common experience. And in being that place of commonality, this is why Paul then emphasizes they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock which accompanied them. That rock was Christ. Again, he's taking the Old Testament imagery of when Moses would strike the rock to have the water come out. And he kind of fuses that with New Testament theology that that, that spring of living water is Christ. And God was with them then. God is with us now. And very much what they experienced with Moses is what we experienced with Christ when we join him by following into that valley of death to self in order to come out on the other side alive in Christ. And of course, the Old Testament is kind of a model of what Christ is going to be. Moses doesn't die for the people, but he's willing to go first into this situation. And he goes into that place of fear and darkness, and the people say, well, we're going to follow him. And that's basically what we do when we're believers. We come to this edge of our faith, of our lives, and we make this decision. Do we follow Christ into this place of death to self, believing that there will be unity in Christ? And I think if you really take this seriously, and the people that go into it, and one reason why we emphasize a believer's baptism in our particular tradition isn't because we believe being baptized saves you, but we do believe that it is a very important step of obedience that you are able to remember. Because there is something that is powerful about making the choice to die to self, to say, I'm going to set aside my life, I'm going to set aside everything that defines me, and I'm going to trust that everything Christ has to define me is better than what I have for myself. I'm going to trust that the, that the plans that Christ has for me are better than my plans for myself. I'm going to trust him. And of course, when you're younger, uh, it's easy. I did this when I was 18. It's easy to do that. When you're 18, you don't have a lot of plans. You don't have a lot of things established yet. That's kind of a blessing of doing something like this when you're a bit younger. But even when you're older, it, can re, it redefines your life. If you follow Christ in that place, and when you trust Christ, when you die to self, and you put everything you've ever hoped for on the line, it bonds you very closely. 
It's like veterans. If you ever talk to veterans or you, you're around veterans who've been through wars together, even though they may only have been together for maybe a year or even less than that, because they go into that place where they share their lives and they share life and death together, and they're, they're, everything is kind of stripped away, and it's just about who do you trust and who are you going through this experience with that creates this incredibly deep bond. And it's not uncommon to hear uh, the sons and grandsons and granddaughters of, of veterans say that it seems that my grandfather or, or father is more close with these people that he was in the military with, even though he's only with them for like one year or maybe two years than he is with his family. And a lot of it has to do because what they experienced together was about life and death, and they saved each other's lives, and they died in each other's arms, and they went through this together, and it bonds them very close. There's something about this. And this is how the Apostle Paul very much sees what it means to give your life to Christ, that you are going to this place of death to self so that there's something more, and you're trusting Christ as you walk into this place of giving him your life. And it's not an easy thing to do. You know, you have, some people really struggle with, like, well, what am I going to be giving up? We have a tendency to, it becomes this test of trusting God. Do you believe that what God has for you in your life is better than what you can imagine for yourself? Do you believe that? Because that is what you're saying when you go into this place of death to self so that Christ will live in you. And the Apostle Paul expresses this over and over and over again. He talks about this, about crossing from, this, from yourself into Christ, having hell pass over you so that you can live again. Look how he puts it. In Romans, he says this. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, therefore, into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Here we have the picture of baptism being death to self, being buried, and rising to new life. That's why we do it by immersion. It's a picture of death, being buried, and rising to new life. In Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. Again, this idea, death to self. Because he believes that what Christ has is better. He's not saying, I'm dying to self and I'm just going to lie around and not really have any ambition or any kind of goal in life. Instead, what he's saying, I'm going to die to self so that I can live the ambitions and goals of Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he's living but he's not living by faith in himself. He's living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Philippians, he says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this. I've already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see an intensity in Paul. And this is how he approaches his faith. This is how he approaches baptism. And for him, baptism is that expression 
of giving up his life, believing there's something better. And that it's not in vain to set aside his worldly ambitions. And Paul was a worldly ambitious guy. He was moving up in the world when he gave his life to Christ. And even though the world might say, especially his contemporaries, well, he gave up too much because he dies in prison. History looks back on him as one of the giants of history and certainly one of the giants of faith. This is a man whose life has been immersed into the experience of Christ. Look what he says here. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And, this, and we, we can all be on board with that. But this, verse, this next sentence is a tough one. It makes us have to think. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. How many of you want to share in the sufferings of Christ? Not a lot of hands went flying up there. But, this is, but why does he say he wants to share in the fellowship of his suffering? Because he wants to know Christ. He wants to experience Christ. And he also knows that some of his own sin led to Christ's suffering. And there's nothing he, in Paul's mind that the world can put upon him, be it the suffering of dying in prison, being the suffering he talks about having this thorn in his side. He goes through a list in one of the, one of the letters of all the things he's been through. He says, I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned, stoned in the sense they threw rocks at him. Uh, I've been, you know, imprisoned. I've been beaten. All these things, beaten even unto death. And yet he says, I count all this stuff, though, everything that I have, everything that I've done to be meaningless when compared to the glory of what it means to know Christ. He's completely given over, a man immersed in Christ. And yet in this passage we read from 1 Corinthians, he also gives the church in Corinth a warning. He tells them in verses 6 and 7, that even though the Israelites had gone through this amazing experience, on the other side of it, some of them still wanted to go back to their old way of life. And if you read the story, you know, they, they were just constantly complaining. They get out to the other side, they go, we don't have enough food. So God sends food, manna from heaven, quail come, and they catch these birds and they eat them. Water comes from a rock. And then the people say, yeah, but we're tired of this food. I mean, they were impossible. And at one point they say, you know, back in Egypt, we could eat leeks and onions by the Nile. So you want to go back to Egypt. So he says, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Because even though they had been through this experience with Moses and in the presence of Almighty God, an undeniably powerful Experience, which I think many of us are like, man, I would love, I'd be terrified, but I'd love to go through that. You know, stand at the ocean, see the oceans, go through it, come on the other side. How many of you would say, now I'm hungry? There's no McDonald's over here. (laughs) That's kind of what they do. It's kind of, it's crazy. And that's why God wasn't pleased with them. He says their bodies are scattered in the desert. And he says, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And what was the evil thing they set their hearts on? Going back. Going back to slavery. Going back to death. Going back. And what they were doing, if you read the Old Testament, they were taking, they were reimagining their history and making it sound like it was wonderful. And sometimes people do that. 
they talk about the good old days when they were out with their buddies and getting completely wasted and doing stupid stuff when they were drunk. And, you know, sometimes we all kind of laugh about that, but sometimes people begin to really sort of miss that. Those were the good old days. It's like, those weren't the good old days. Those are the days Christ saved you from. Stay in the place of where Christ saved you instead of wanting to go back. And so this is one of the interesting, I find, interesting ways that baptism is discussed in the, in the New Testament by Paul. Because that challenge, when he writes this to the Corinthians, you know, he was warning them to not put their hand to the plow and start looking back at what was. You know, Jesus has to warn people about this too. He says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God. And I want to, if they're here today, I think some may be already down at the lake, but if you're here today and you're getting baptized, and for those of you who have been believers and baptized believers, I want to remind you that when you make this expression of faith and you make a public declaration, which is what these folks are doing, we're going down, it's going to be public. When you're making this public declaration, you're placing your hand upon the plow, you're working in the kingdom of God, you're moving ahead, and there's no place to start looking back over your shoulder at what was. Because what was is dead. What was is no longer exists and it doesn't matter. And that can be a good thing if some of you want to get away from a past and be forgiven of a past or don't have to deal with a past that you've felt ashamed of or you feel has haunted you. Don't look back. But for some of you who came from a past which, you know, there are things in it you miss, there were some things in there that you enjoyed and you feel like, well, now God is taking me a different direction. The, the, uh, the command is the same. Don't look back. Because you have been called by God to move the kingdom of God forward. So place your hand on the plow and move it forward. Do what Christ has called you to do. And I know the temptation to reassert the old self. That old self wants to come back again and again. There's this old self that wants to stand up and be counted, that says, hey, what about me? And that's why we're called upon to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto God. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This is a continual sacrifice so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds so then we will know and be able to test what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. So this is, becomes our choice then. We can choose to stay following Christ, moving the kingdom forward, or we can choose to look back and get lost in the emptiness of what was. So may we not only just take heed of Paul's words to the Corinthians, but also his life. You know, as you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, especially in the book of Acts, you're going to start the uh, Bible study Thursday evening Bible study this week, and we're going to go through the book of Acts. If you're interested in signing up, you can do it through the app. Uh, it's a Thursday evening Bible study. It's all online. But Paul, you'll find as you go through that, he's not a perfect guy. I had a seminary professor that used to say, I don't think I'd like to have a latte with Paul. Yeah, I appreciate what Paul wrote, but his personality seemed to be a bit of a difficult one. This is just his opinion. But you look at it, Paul made... Choices, which sometimes you kind of go, I'm not, not so sure that was a choice of grace. Not so sure that was necessarily the best choice. I mean, he gets in such a huge fight with one of his best friends that they split up their ministry and you never see them working together again. He was a fallible guy. He tears into people sometimes. He has places where he's, he's angry. 
He has a wisdom that people don't understand because they say it's the foolishness of the cross. But he was immersed into Christ. With all his failings and, and shortcomings, his desire was to know Christ in his resurrection and to partake in his suffering. He was immersed into following Jesus. And may we do that as well. At the end of his life, there wasn't much of Paul left. Not just physically, because he was imprisoned. But you even get a sense spiritually. When you read 2 Timothy, you see a guy that's coming to the end of his race. And he's forgiven whatever needed to be forgiven between he and Mark. In fact, Mark, he asks him to bring him his cloak because he's cold in prison. And you can see he's resigned. He's giving himself over. His physical life is coming to an end, but he's looking forward to what his real life is going to be. And may it be so with us. May we run the race of our life and faith so passionately that at the end there's not much of us left, but there's a lot of Christ in us. And when people see us in our entire lives, they'll say there is a model of someone who gave their life and lived their life for Christ. Be in prayer for those who are getting baptized today. It's a big step. And I hope you can hear some of their story. I don't know how many are going to be willing to say much. But some of their stories are from young people who are, who are following the, the faith that was given to them by their parents. And thank God for the parents. Thank God for the children that are willing to follow young people. Some of them are adults who have had to navigate a lot of, a lot of difficult cultural as well as religious waters ahead of them to come to this place. Some of them are folks that have said, I know I should have done this a long time ago, but I've just struggled with it. The idea of death to self is an intimidating one if you really take the time to be thoughtful about it. But they're all taking the step today. Pray for them. And if you're in that place of having never taken that step of obedience of being baptized as a believer in Christ, learn from them as well as we walk together as a community of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this time together. And Lord, we do uh, thank you for those who are uh, being baptized today. We thank you for not just their own personal journey, but also what their uh, public declaration of faith is going to mean to us as a body. It just kind of strengthens us, encourages us. And Lord, also what it will mean to those who are looking on. Some of, many of whom, if we're down at the park and there's people there, won't be believers. And Lord, may they question and may those questions be that opening for the Holy Spirit to draw them unto you. And we pray for brothers and sisters here that are, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and some of them may be struggling with the idea of, of a believer's baptism. And God, that you would guide them in what you want them to do, where you want them to respond to that and how. But in all things, Father, we pray that you would take the glory. It's all really about you. It's about us trusting you. And what you have for us is better than what we have for ourselves. In whatever way, in whatever form that manifests itself, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And what you want for us is better than anything the world would offer or that we could ever offer ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.